It is important, and you know, this is some of the reason why we need to really go back and make sure we understand that God still speaks. That his voice didn't go silent at the end of Acts, that he still speaks to us as a father would speak to his children. Because if you don't believe that, you're going to miss a great deal of the personal conversation that he has with you. You're going to miss those things like him telling you who you are and that how he sees you. And so then if you don't believe that, if you don't believe he speaks and you've turned that off, all you're left with is all the voices that the world has. And it's so important to teach and make sure we understand that we know that he speaks and that he speaks to us. And it's very personal. And we don't have to squeeze those words out of him. We have to listen. But he's very ready to talk. He can speak to the deepest things in you. He can do what no one else can do because I could try to say those things that I thought you needed to hear but I would still be off. But he doesn't. He, he knows exactly the words, and they're amazing. My mind goes to Paul in Galatians because here was a man who felt he was very right in his persecution of the church. Very right standing there when they were stoning Stephen to death as he held the coats of those who were doing the stoning. He was present in that moment. He thought he was very right, very justified in all that he was doing. But in Galatians chapter 1, that powerful phrase says, but when it pleased God. What if he hadn't have been listening? What if on the road to Damascus he would have dismissed that as some strange occurrence and didn't believe for a second that that was Jesus that he had actually spoken to? Well, I promise you, when Jesus speaks to us, this is kind of hard to say, maybe a little hard to believe, but when Jesus speaks to us, it is as profound as it was when he spoke to Paul. I would dare you to find any moment when God spoke with any degree of clarity to you that you could make that a non-event. That's the God of heaven speaking to you. How you would ever reduce that to something less than what happened with Paul. But he speaks and he needs for us to know it because there's not many ways to battle what the world says if you don't hear the voice of God. Because you're going to be left with somebody trying to encourage you, which is helpful, somebody trying to tell you something different, but it's hard to believe and hard to be convinced if God doesn't tell it. But when God speaks, whether he's speaking directly to you or through somebody else, and you know that that was God, things that you can't explain except for the voice of God. He gave you a moment when you had to choose, and the choice wasn't the obvious one. It was the hard one. But it opened a door and set a course that was just profoundly different than I think anybody could have imagined. Well, I'm going to talk tonight, if you want to go with me to Second Kings chapter 20. The setting of this is, we know a little bit about King Hezekiah, but the number one thing that we know is he asked God to extend his life. I'm not going to go back through that part of the story, but God did extend his life for 15 years. And Hezekiah asked for a sign, and for a second time God used the sun to demonstrate his power because he made the sun stop. So he did that again just to demonstrate for Hezekiah the power that he has so that Hezekiah would believe him. But I want us to begin in verse 12, because he had been sick. Now he was well because God had extended his life, and it was a sickness that was going to take his life. Makes this request before God, and God gives him this moment. Well, this is how he handled the moment. I'll begin with verse 12 and admit very quickly that this first word is, I'm going to slaughter. And if anybody else wants to say it, then they can help me. 
Barrow-Baladan. All right, that's who, that's who we've got that past us. The son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasure. There was nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. So here's this moment when Hezekiah has been granted this request and an extension of his life. Now, it would seem immediately to all of us that if anybody was going to send you a present or a get well card or you were going to invite them to your home after you had recovered, that probably what you would tell them about was the God who had done what you had asked. The, the most immediate reaction was for these people who were coming because he says he, when they sent us these gifts, he reached out to them and said, why don't you come? And they did. But it does seem like that the most imperative thing that he would want to tell them at that point was about the God who had extended his life, the God who had healed him. But what he did instead was he showed them all of his riches. He showed them all of his wealth, all of his money. He showed them all of his power. He did everything he could to impress them. So there were two amazing things that happened in this story. When I was studying this, the big question is, why are we having such a hard time passing our faith to the next generation? Why are we having such a hard time in losing this moment between, between grandparents and parents, and especially between parents and their kids? Why don't they see our faith and follow? Why don't they see our commitment and follow it? Why don't they understand the love of God that we have and pursue it themselves? What's causing this why are we having such a difficult time passing faith to the next generation? If somebody would have been standing here 40 or 50 years ago, they might have been having the same question. Why is it hard then? Why is it hard now? It may have been a common question over a long period of time. I don't know. But I do know that right now, it seems like it's almost impossible to get a kid in high school or middle school to get any traction to the things of God. Even when the parents, grandparents, have demonstrated great faith, it's just not even a choice that they're attempting to make. So I asked from this passage, what's difficult here? I came up with two answers. The first one was this. We still don't recognize the enemy when he comes to our house. Well, how does he come disguised now? What does he look like when he enters our home that would be a message to our children about what really matters to us. What do we invite in that if we were honest about it, we would have to say, we've just let an enemy in the door. Busyness, television, music, what they hear us say to each other, social media. There's just a lot of things that have come to visit at our door that we don't recognize the damage that they're doing. It's very difficult to separate the tools that God gives us that are reasonable and usable from the, the deception that's created around the same thing. I use my computer a lot, so much faster looking up scripture, finding things that I can only remember a remote part that I can use a computer. I love the fact that I can pay bills. I love the fact that I can do that. But it also robs my time. 
it is a real robber of my time. And I can justify it saying that that's how I'm getting my mind clear. I can do a puzzle or something like that. And, and I think that, again, there's nothing unreasonable about any of those things until you realize how many hours that you've been sitting there and how much time it's consumed. But there are so many enemies that come to our door. You see, that's what happened here with Hezekiah. It's kind of strange because when you look at Babylon in this day, they were a country, an empire of no impact, no effect. They were weak. They had no power to come and overwhelm what was happening here with Hezekiah. They weren't this powerful nation, this powerful empire yet. They were kind of a non-story. So he didn't think anything of inviting this non-threatening nation to come into his home, to come into his domain. And what a better group of people to impress. You know, you couldn't have impressed somebody that was tremendously powerful with the stuff, but, but somebody who didn't have it, you certainly could. So again, the first thing, that why this is growing more and more difficult to pass this on to our kids, is because of the enemies that come to our door that we allow in. There's a family here in town that I don't know very well, but I do know that they are very, very committed, very openly committed to raising their children in the fear and in the admonition of God. They make no bones about it. It affects the decisions they make on a family basis, on a weekly basis, daily, hourly basis. Because I've talked to the dad enough to know that their commitment is firm. Now, I don't know what will happen with their children. I don't know the outcome of this. But I do know that they have made several things happen within their own story, trying their best. It's always a hard transfer when their faith becomes theirs. Because they run so long off of ours. It's always a hard transition when a child's faith becomes their own. But, you know, John has and I have had this conversation before about what happened within that history, what happens within that legacy that makes this choice much easier. When you have been taught those things in the, and it's just part of the fiber of how you've been raised. But he invited an enemy. The second thing that he did is we still accept the gifts that the enemy gives us. We not only invite them in, but we receive the gifts that the enemy gives us. This is some of what we were talking about. Darkness disguised as light. You know, again, this is a powerfully handy tool. But this is a terribly handy tool. But what happens when you put it in the hands of a fifth grader or a third grader? Oh, the places they go, things they see, the conversations they have, the fact that they've got a camera right here that is just uh, extremely handy, and how strange it is that we have put something so sophisticated into the hands of children who have no capability, no filters, to understand why they can't go where they can't go. So what have we done? We have received the gifts that the enemy gave us and handed them out very, very freely. And I don't know what it would be like raising a kid today. I, don't, I truly don't know. When ours were growing up and they said, you know, can we go down? This, this has kind of gone away, I guess. But back in that day, it was very popular together down on the parking lot where the steak ranch was, where the city hall is now. And there would be 10 or 12 cars there. And our kids would want to go. It's like, no, this isn't a debate. And there wasn't any difference between Jay and the girls. The answer was no. You're not going. If I find you there, then here's the consequences. And they never did understand. Because we would tell them, 
if you want to bring those, those 10 or 12 cars to our house and get out and, and sit in our living room, that will be perfectly fine. But you're not going down there because there's nothing happening down there that you need to be a part of. And they accepted it to some degree, I guess, because I never, we never did find them down there. But there were so many things that we made a decision. You can't have a telephone in your room. Every conversation that you're going to have should be, at your age should be heard publicly. And you're not going to take that phone, even when we got one that was portable, you're not taking that phone to your room to have a conversation. We've got one TV in our house, and you're going to agree on what you're going to watch. And if you don't, it'll, it'll go off. They wanted an Atari back in those days, and we, we, we got them one. And said, you can play 30 minutes a day, but you have to completely get it out and completely put it away out of sight after you finish playing. And they got real tired of that real soon. And so the Atari went away very quickly, and they just went back outside and played. I mean, these were all rules that we set up that because we had an objective, we had a message that we we wanted to send our kids, and we made those decisions. But I can't even imagine trying to enforce those today. When your child in the third grade saying, but everybody else has got a cell phone. Everybody else has got an iPhone. Everybody else has got every in this like, I don't know how. It would be such a challenge today to take the stances in the, in the perspective that Jan and I did and bring it into this culture today because you're dealing with it on such an early level. But somewhere in this heart, we have to recognize that we not only have let the enemy come to the door, but we received the gifts that they gave us. There's no doubt that those choices that we are making as parents, many of them are being made with no wisdom and no discernment at all. When those visitors came, he introduced them to the God of Mammon. Instead of introducing them to the God who had, who had healed him, to the God who had restored him, he introduced them, by all that he showed, he introduced them to the God of Mammon. I would like to say that that story has changed. But when we focus so largely for ourselves, and especially within the life of our children, to make absolutely certain that they have the most expensive shoes, the clothes that everybody wants, dressed like they need to be dressed, living under that situation and that circumstance, what we are doing is we're introducing our children to the God of Mammon, teaching them to what's valuable is based on what you have money to buy. It's no different than what was happening here. He was showing them what money would do. He was showing them what was valuable. And I want to tell you, it's, there's not anything wrong with providing our kids with the things that are needed. But it has got terribly competitive within our children's lives when they see what, others, what somebody else has and they don't have because some parent somewhere has sent this child to school with a $100 cell phone and that becomes the standard for everybody else because what is they've seen is this is what money can do. And they get introduced very quickly to the God of Mammon. It is true, too, that when you don't know who you are, then all these very unimportant things become extremely important. I'm identified by what I look like, by what I'm wearing. If we look at the origin of this, where is this coming from? Our being self-centered was basically Hezekiah's story. His being self-centered was the greatest challenge he was facing if he was going to leave anything of a legacy to the next generation. The more that he shined the light on himself, the worse the message got for those who were coming after him. 
That has not changed. The more we shine the light on ourselves, making sure that our life looks right, that everything is in place, that we have the things that we're supposed to have, the more that we focus on that, the, the harder time we're going to have passing a legacy on to the next generation. Because they should be seeing us in the very nature of God that the greatest thing about us is that our life is not self-centered, it's other-centered. I, I shared this story and it's just, it's just one that stands out. We had a family that came to our house. It was a mom and a dad and a daughter. And they came to our house and they were about to lose their house because they couldn't make the payments. And they, they almost had it paid for. I mean, they were just down to a few payments, but they couldn't make the payment. So they, they came and asked Jan and I if we would help. And tremendously good friends, and the answer was yes, and we helped them take care of it. But a few days later, Jay asked for a go-kart. And I told him, I said, Jay, I need to tell you something. I said, did you see the family that was here a few days ago? And he said, yeah, and he called them by name. And I said, yeah, that's who I'm talking about. I said, do you know what they needed? And he said, no, sir, I don't. And I said, well, they were about to lose their house. And they came and asked someone for help. And me and your mom helped them. I told him, I said, there will never be a day, if, if I'm capable, that you will ever lack anything. But there's a place when your desires begin to run headlong into somebody else's very tremendous need. And I said, what would you have me do? Buy the go-kart or help them? What do you think his answer was? You know what it was. It was help them. Because he needed to know from Jan and I that our hearts were other-centered. But I can tell you, in that moment, had self rose up, the legacy would have been very different coming out of that. If he'd have seen this unfold and the answer to this family would have been no, so that we could have provided him some other toy, the legacy would have been very different. You all all have stories like that, I know. You all have those moments in your life where you made those same choices because the love that you had for somebody else was going to be the greatest part of the legacy that you could ever leave another generation. And you hope in those moments... You're not doing it for that reason, but you hope in those moments, when you look back, that they help make a difference in the lives and the values of your children. Let's read a little bit further in this story, and then we'll conclude. Verse 14, Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah, and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in, in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Now, you have to go back and think about the exact moment that we're talking about. God had just healed him. God had just restored him, extended his life for he didn't know how long, but we know now for 15 years. What should have been on his heart immediately when anybody came to his home, that he would have begun the testimony by saying, this is what God has done. This is the life he's restored. These are the blessings that he has given me. This is what he's done in my life. And I know for each of you here that God has made those kind of changes. He's made that kind of difference. Even lately within your story, 
that this is the way it was, but now He has set me free. Now I understand. Now I have wisdom where I didn't have it. I have a perspective that I didn't have before because God has shown me. God has told me. God has encouraged me. I have something new to tell. And how strange it would be for someone to come into your home after such great transformation from God in your story and you begin to pull out all the things that you have in your cabinets. It would just like it blow our minds, but this is exactly where he was. And listen to what Isaiah is going to tell him. Verse 16, And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come, that all that is in thy house, and that which the fathers have laid up in store unto this day, shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. What's going to happen to all this stuff that we value so much? It will be carried away. And then he says this awful thing, this horrible thing coming from the voice of Isaiah, the, the coming from the truth of God. In verse 18 he says, And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs unto the palace of the kings of Babylon. That's what you're passing to that next generation. That's the gift that you're going to give them by what you have just done. You will sell them out into the enemy's hands because of the choices you made right here. That's the legacy that you're fixing to leave them. When you had an opportunity, you had such a, a moment when you could have said so many things about the God who loves you, restored you, saved you, extended your life, and you chose to introduce them to the God of mammon. And the legacy that you will now have is those Babylonians will now know where the treasures are and they will come for them. And the worst is they won't come for your money. They'll come for your children. And you just handed your kids into the hands of the enemy. This is not easy raising kids. But I want to tell you, when we understand these practical things, I've got a list here and I'm just going to run down through them very quickly. How do we pass this legacy to our children, and I'm going to give just a few practical ones, and I'm going to put this at the top of the list. First of all, you will never prepare your children for the future that's coming if you don't help them identify who they are. You'll never be able to give enough skills, establish enough morals, do enough training for them to meet the future that's coming against them if you don't speak identity to them, if you don't anchor them in identity. You can't tell them that you're good at this, you're good at that. You have to speak what God says about them. You have to speak those things that create such a base. And you can't do it by complimenting them. You do it by telling them the truth as God reveals it, that your name is this, that your gifts are these. This is the way God sees you. Don't make it up. Let God speak to you and speak that truth to them because they will hit that mark that Johnny's talking about that hit much later in her life. It, his voice will hit that mark and they'll know it's true. Again, Jesus, when he was called the prince of devils, he didn't have to recoil from that statement because he knew that his father called him the prince of peace. He knew who he was and that identity set him against any arrows, against any offensive that would come against him. He knew who he was. That has to go to the top of the list. The second is that the relationships that we have as adults have got to demonstrate to our kids what God values. I will go to this because as a subgroup of this, but husbands 
and the relationships with wives and the wives and their relationship with their husbands is designed to be a primary place that children can look and understand what God is like. Now, I know that's not always possible for both to be there in the picture, but it's still within that individual, within that single mom or that single dad or grandparents who are raising kids, for the kids to be able to look up and in their looking up, what they actually see is a grandparent or a parent here, and the consistency is so significant because when they look past you, they see the Father. They need to see in you those attributes of the Father so that He becomes familiar to them, so that He's recognizable to them. So in these adult relationships, how we treat each other, what we do, what we value is going to send them a message that's very powerful. The third thing on my list, is that these kids need to be raised in homes that are grace-based and not performance-based. It's a huge, huge difference. But I can boil it down to this very simply. If your child believes that they're loved the most when they perform the best, you're raising them in a performance-based home. If the day that they feel the most valued is when they come home with the best report cards or they scored the most points, or they did anything the best that they were involved in, and that's the day that they get the, all the praise and acknowledgement, you're raising them in a performance-based home. If they come home on the worst day, the worst news, having made the most difficult and awful mistakes, and that's the day they know they're loved the most, that's a home that's got a basis of grace and not performance. And again, this is something that Jan and I did I don't know if we were that wise. There's just something we stumbled onto. I know that James Dobson taught us a lot very early in our lives about raising kids. But we made a decision. I can remember us being down on the south end of town on Main Street. And this conversation was going on. What would we say to our kids if this were the news? What would we say if Jay came home and said, my girlfriend is pregnant? What would we say if the girls came home and said that? What would we say in any of those situations? And we rehearsed. What we would want our kids to hear in that moment because we would want healing and recovery to come that fast and not condemnation and judgment so that they would know that they were raised in a home where grace was the basis and not performance. And we rehearsed it. And we just would work through those to make sure that we were ready for any of those conversations that we might have to have. And I can tell you that it was just a valuable time Because we wanted them to know that they were loved the most on the day that they performed the worst. Not just the days when they had done the best. The next one on the list was that you have to speak to the treasure that they are. If you want to call them a rugrat, what are you going to get? You're going to get a rugrat. You speak to the treasure. I remember one time sitting in Sherry's restaurant, and I don't know the couple, but there was a man and a woman and two little girls. And I was sitting there listening and overhearing this conversation. Couldn't really help it. And both the mom and the dad were speaking to the treasure that was those girls. I was amazed at how those those parents were building these two kids up. In the place where there's normally such correction and criticism and harshness and abruptness, they were speaking such goodness to these two elementary age girls. Speaking to the treasure. I know when Mickey came and told us that she was going to have Tatum, And I can go back into my mom and dad's kitchen where we were in the chair that I was sitting in and where Mickey was and Janice was and Jan was when they told us that she was going to have a baby. And I can remember in those moments telling Mickey what excitement this was and they were expecting a very different response. 
And I was telling them how excited we were that, that she was going to have this baby. And I told Mickey on that day, every day speak to the treasure that you see in that child. And that's what you will get. You will get the treasure. You'll get what you speak to. That's a practical lesson that parents have often missed. This one is a little, I'm not going to take a long time to explain it, but I'll say it. We recognize our families as a gift rather than a prize that we've earned. I guarantee how we treat a gift and how we treat a prize are very different. If we know that they're a gift, what's the first thing that we tell our children when they receive a gift? Say, thank you. So the first thing that rises out of us when we realize that our children are a gift is gratitude. If we ever imagine them to be a prize, we will have to dress them up. We'll have to polish them regularly. We'll have to put them on display because that's what prizes are for. And I want to tell you, when you watch so often how children are raised, you can tell that they are a prize to be put on display by the parents so that the parents can receive the accolades for what the children have just done. They're a prize in those moments. We have to raise children in the situation where we know they are a gift rather than a prize that we somehow have deserved. The last one, we have to step away from those things taking us away from our families. Sometimes that's at a high cost or seems to be high. But we have to step away from those things that are robbing us and stealing this time that we have with our families. So I'm going to another short list. These are deeply practical. That's the way I have them listed. If we don't pursue God with all our heart, then they won't pursue God with all of theirs. They will watch our relationship with God, and they won't quite mimic it. They will mimic it to a place and reduce it. That's a guarantee. It won't be just what we do. They will take what we do, and they'll adjust it for themselves. We have to recognize His love for us and the provision of the Holy Spirit that qualifies us for this task. If you don't bring the Holy Spirit into the story, the difficulty increases tremendously. Why? If I want to know the truth, who's going to have to tell me? If I want wisdom, where does it have to come from? If you don't invite him, if you don't make him a centerpiece of raising kids, you have greatly made the situation more difficult. You have to recognize that Christ lives in you. Why does that make such a difference? Because what, where are they going to see it? Where are they going to be introduced to him? It's going to be in you. We have to refuse to accept the idea that God is happy with our busyness. And I think we've talked about that a lot within this church. But when we think that God is happy with our busyness, we turn to religion and not to faith. Because religion will always create busyness. Faith won't necessarily, and we may be busy, but it will be an unbelievable productive busyness when it's coming from the Holy Spirit. The next to last one is refuse religion. Deeply practical. If we don't refuse religion, we'll pass religion on to our children. And I can't think of a worse gift to give them. Religion has no ability to restore life. It has no ability to create truth. It has a great tendency to rob. And I tell you what, that's one of those things, and I know it sounds strange, and this will be recorded, and that's perfectly okay, because the number one enemy that comes through our door that we invite in is religion. And we talk about money and what money can do. The last one, if you're going to do this well and raise children to the, where you can leave them a legacy, you have to seek help. You have to recognize that I'm not in this by myself, that there are others who have walked where I've walked, others who have done this well, and every day, when necessary, seek help. Most kids looking up don't see parents who have genuine, authentic relationships with God. They see something else. They, they may see somebody that goes to church, 
but they also see that same parent and the compromises that they're making as soon as they get home or the next day. The language that they hear from those same parents who just took them to church. And they watch the compromise. And so they don't see adults who have genuine, authentic, real relationships with God through faith and trust the Holy Spirit and speak in those terms. Because the most parents in the religious world are concerned about getting their children saved as early as possible. We understand the desire, but there is no practical truth that that should ever be taught or expected. We get this one passage where Jesus says, Suffer the children to come unto me. But then immediately he tells the adults, Unless you come this way, you won't understand what I'm talking about. I think it's in Acts chapter 5, right after the story of Ananias and Sapphira. When the disciples were preaching and teaching right after that, and said that the, and there were many added to the, what's the word? Added to, what do you think sits right there? That's where most of our minds go. There were many added to the Lord. Not added to the church. There were many added to the Lord. What that means is that the Lord now had a new set of hands. The Lord had now had a new voice. The Lord now had a new witness. And we've reduced it to be added to the church. But they were serious because in that moment that you were making a decision, you were being added to the Lord. You were in Him is that message. And it says of the rest, they dared not join themselves to this group. Because when you said it, you realized, I'm adding myself to the Lord. This life is not mine anymore. I'm being added to Him. What happens to most when they're saved today? They're added to the church. Nope, we're added to Him. We're added to the Lord. Strange little phrase, but a powerful difference in, the, in our perspective about our relationship with Him. And we're missing the authenticity of it because we don't know that we're being added to the Lord. We think we got added to the church and that the church got a new set of hands. Or a new mouth. Nope, the Lord did. Let's end with the word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this reminder that we have an opportunity to pass a legacy to our children and grandchildren. But it won't be much of a legacy if we ourselves are not authentic in this relationship with you. We can go through the motions and pass a message to them of how unimportant and insignificant you are. Or by faith we can tell them that there is no life without you. There is no joy. There is no true depth and peace. There's no satisfaction without Christ being in the center of the story. So I pray, Lord, for those sitting here, for many who aren't, that this message, the foolishness of Hezekiah, would be recognized and that we would know that we've invited many enemies into our home. We've entertained them and we've wined and dined them and we've shown them and introduced them to the God of Mammon. And I pray, Lord, that we would be convicted in this hour that we, for ourselves, would live before our children and grandchildren a life that they would see our faith and know we love you, but most of all, know that you love us. We speak these things in Jesus' name. Amen.